And we're live. Hello, and welcome to Author Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the forthcoming Atomic Anna, and I'm here today with Alex Segura, and I'm so excited to introduce you to him. His book, right here, Secret Identity, that's right, those are comics you see right on the cover, <laughs> is absolutely amazing. I loved it, and I'm so excited to share this book and Alex with you today. So, Alex, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. So I'm going to read a quick bio just so our listeners know who you are and what you're about, and then we're going to dig right in. Sounds so good. Alex Segura is the author of Star Wars Poe Dameron, Freefall, and the acclaimed Pete Fernandez mystery series. He's also written a number of comic books, most notably the superhero noir, The Black Ghost, the YA music series, The Archies, and the Archie Meets collection of crossovers. A Miami native, he lives in New York City with his wife and children. Very impressive. Very Thank impressive. You. Thank especially you. Especially in the comic world. <laughs> yes. And I'm so excited to have you here today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So to start us off, this beautiful book, Secret Identity, give me your logline. Tell me, what is this book about? Well, you have the galley. This is the final copy, which looks very nice and shiny. Uh, the logline is Secret Identity is about a woman named Carmen Valdez, a queer Cuban-American woman who, in 1975, moves from Miami, her hometown, to New York to pursue her dream in comics. She takes a job at a small publisher called Triumph to try and get that dream to come to life, but she doesn't find a path. Her boss basically tells her it's not going to happen. I have other plans for you. Um, so despondent, she's approached by because a cop. Yeah, basically, yeah, because he basically says he's got a line of people and buddies that he's got to keep fed, and it's just not in the cards for her. And so um, a junior editor approaches her and says, hey, I've got this opportunity to launch the first female superhero from Triumph. Do you want to help me write it? The only hitch is that she needs to do it anonymously. Um, and she sees all the red flags because she's very smart, she's very driven, but she's also tempted by this dream. So she does it. They write this character called the Legendary Lynx. It's a huge hit. And then her partner is murdered. And nobody knows that Carmen had anything to do with it. Dun, so she dun, has dun, to, dun. Yeah, dun dun. So she has <laughs> to uh, basically investigate the murder of her friend to figure out what happened to him because she's a good friend and also to reclaim this character. And interspersed in the prose are actual comic book sequences from the Lynx, uh, drawn by Sandy Gerald. And so as you're following Carmen, you're seeing what's happening to the character, even when the character is taken away and other creators work on it. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to stress to people listening, you do not have to be a comic book lover to love this book, right? No, but I hope by the time you're, yeah, by the time you're done, you will love comics as much as I do. Yes, I am hoping that's what happens. So, okay, true story. Um, I knew that I had to talk to you and I had to get this book when I read your acknowledgments. I start with acknowledgments. I know oh, that's good. a little crazy. Interesting, yeah. All right, yeah. But meanwhile, like first paragraph, you start talking about Trina Robbins and her amazing legend. books. She is a legend. She is in my book, Atomic Anna, too. That's um, exciting. And I've been in touch with her, like, she is amazing. So please tell me about Trina Robbins and how she has touched your life. I mean, she's amazing. She's just such an iconic figure. You know, one of the things that was most helpful to me, she did this long interview for a podcast called Comic Book Historians that covered her entire career. And I was like, this is so fascinating. And that really pulled me into the well. I'd read some of her books, but it you know, then I read her memoir and I read, you know, I have the shelf here, like a shelf of her stuff. Like I know, also have a whole shelf. Yeah. The great, the, gr the great woman cartoonist, you know, a century of woman cartoonists, like the whole library was so important to me just to kind of get her perspective. Now, I didn't speak to her directly. I did after the fact. I got to send her a copy of the book and she read it. And I think there's a line in Secret Identity where one of the characters says, you know, I'm just a third grade Trina Robbins. And she thought that was yeah. pretty funny. So. 
Yes, we're going to get to that. That's one of my questions. Okay. I have that marked down on page okay. 280 or whatever, because uh -huh. I really am a Trina Robbins fan. Good. Yeah, so I was super excited to see that. Um, okay, so uh, we're talking about comic books, but we're also talking about secret identities and writing a book. And mm -hmm. I loved it. One of the lines in here, um, you talk about creating a comic book, which I sort of is like meta, also creating a novel at the same time, right? They're the two books within the book. And you have this great line and you write, or one of your characters says, but you wrote this, you have to create a world with people in it. So believable that you are just the tool that the world uses to tell the story. I thought that was so beautiful. So oh, can thanks. you talk about how you see that, right? I mean, you know, there's always, there's that endless discussion about pantsers versus plotters and outlining. And to me, it's like, you can do whatever you want, but once the characters start moving on their own, they start pulling you their way, that's good. You need to be able to ride that no matter what your outline says. And that's when the book gets really interesting, when the characters start to come to life, because you've you've built them to be so three-dimensional and you put them in a world that's so interesting that they start doing things on their own. Um, and that to me is kind of the magic that we don't always get, but when we do get it, it's really helpful. Yeah. And also that this world is so real to you and to your characters, right? Both the novel and the links, the comic book, right? Yeah. When I approached the book, I really, my big thing was I wanted to have a strong sense of verisimilitude that you read it and you feel like this could have happened. You know, that, you know, the facts are correct enough, the details are real enough, and the world feels genuine enough that if you kind of squint a little bit, you could envision yourself picking up like a legendary Lynx comic at a comic shop today or something. Like it, it could exist. I feel like it does. I, I'm kind of okay. shocked that, that you haven't put it in a comic book yet. So I'm we're going to at some point. Yeah. Yay. I love good. Okay. I'm so glad and I'm ready for it. Good. Um, okay. So let's talk about Carmen Valdez. She's the main character. Um, it's a woman. She's a queer woman, Cuban American. Mm -hmm. um, you are not a woman. Okay? No, I'm How, not. Right. How was that writing that? I think, you, yeah, I mean, we obviously share a lot of background. You know, she's Cuban-American. She's from Miami. We have a lot of similar backgrounds. And she, you know, she reminds me of a lot of friends I had growing up and still have. But I think as authors, we have to be thoughtful when we're writing outside of our experience. And that means doing the homework. That means, you know, being considerate when we're writing these characters, but also knowing that we don't know everything in these situations. So I had a lot of great beta readers, a lot of great sensitivity readers. I spoke to a lot of women that worked in comics at the time to kind of make sure that, you know, this, I know it's a mystery, you know, it's an it's a, it's a pulpy read. So that is one thing, but, and I'm not trying to write her definitive experience, but I also wanted it to ring true. And so um, I think that that's the key. And, you know, there's always a lot of debate, like, well, I should be able to write whatever I want. You know, you get a lot of pushback online or I've seen a lot. And I think no one's saying you can't, I think you just have to kind of do it thoughtfully and hopefully well. Yeah. You know, I was just reading today that even Ann Tyler, who just came out with, I think, her 24th book, like it broke her interview silence. Oh, really? <laughs> to say how important it is that writers should be able to write whoever they feel comfortable writing. And I just thought that was, that was pretty brave. I mean, she came out to talk about that. Yeah, I think you can as long as you do the work. That's yeah. that's my one kind of addendum to that statement, I guess. You can if you do the work. I like yeah. that. I like that. Okay. So let's talk about secret identities and Carmen. Um, you introduced her like on one of the very first pages. Um, she's growing up and uh, you say she had to become someone else to survive. 
So we know from like page two, we're talking about secret identities, right? And who she is growing up. And mm -hmm. she's, you know, the secret creator of the Lynx. And then the Lynx is also a secret identity. So talk to me about all the layers of secret identities in this book. Yeah, I think the core secret identity in the story is the identity of the Lynx's creator, who is Carmen. And so for the bulk of the story, she's pushing back against that self-imposed mystery. Like she's kind of kicking herself, but also realizing that she has to overcome this mask that's been put on her. Um, and I think in that in the prologue, when she says she has to kind of create a, a cloak around herself, that's almost like a defense. You know, I think she's very cool and collected, but that's a really like self-imposed personality trait. Like she has to be to survive like this world around her, especially, you know, comic book publishing at the time and kind of defending herself against, you know, the structure and I, just a lot of it is the misogyny of the era. Um, and so, you know, I hope there is some closure by the end of the book. That's the big challenge. Like, how does she overcome the secret that she accepted but didn't expect to take that turn, you know? Right. Layers and layers of secrets. Yeah. But it's funny you said she's cool and collected because, I, I mean, I understand when she's in the office and you have her, it seems everyone thinks she's all calm and cool, right? And she's throwing the money into the trash can. Like, I'm not getting your coffee, right? Yeah, I like that moment. <laughs> I love that moment, yeah. actually. But I, I felt like her inner self was not at all cool and collected. Like I didn't think of her as that kind of character. Well, she cracks. She definitely cracks at certain moments. And I think that's, I found that to be the most relatable parts about her, that she's trying yeah. really hard to put up this defense, but like so much is happening. Like I think anyone under her, pre that pressure would also crack. There's a moment, not to spoil anything, where this homicide detective is grilling her and she just breaks kind of. Yeah. Because I think any of us would. Under I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where this is not a PI novel. This is not like a well-seasoned like detective. Like she's just, she just wants her care. She just wants to own the character or have ownership of this idea that was like so dear to her heart that she poured into this project and is now gone. Right. Right. And, you know, I have to say, so I don't think this is a spoiler, um, that she's been writing comics for a long time. And so mm -hmm. she has several issues ready to go when someone says, you know, what do you, you know, could you help? Um, yeah, and... that was my favorite. That's my favorite Carmen moment where she's like brainstorming with Harvey and Harvey's like kind of like throwing blind darts. And she's like, no, here you go. This is right. what like, I got. Here are yeah. my six issues. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, know, totally. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. But I felt like that was such a writer moment too, because I don't know about you, but I have several books sitting in the drawer. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have a very bad, like great Gatsby shtick thing that just is never meant to see the light of day that I wrote in college and stuff like that. Yeah. I think as yeah. writers, we have to like make those mistakes and it's okay if they're not meant for the wider world. Right, right, sitting in the drawer. So it's like, are you looking for a great Gatsby book? Like, well, I have some ideas, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So I just felt like you really captured her there. Okay. Oh, um, okay, so a, a lot of, um, I guess, reviews, your stellar, amazing reviews that have been coming Thank out you. talk about noir and, right, that word is thrown around all the time as a genre and um, how you really capture the feel of New York City at this moment. And I just wanted to read um, a quick sort of little paragraph, a couple of lines here to give our listeners an idea of what this means and how well you capture it. So um, you wrote, as she wandered the cavernous transport hub, a concrete behemoth at the tail end of the Lincoln Tunnel, she got a heavy dose of what she'd only imagined, a city in disrepair, boiled down into this one sprawling bus terminal. Leaky ceilings, shadowy conversations, blaring horns, and unidentifiable smells all coalesced into an unbridled fear that gripped Carmen as she stepped out into the New York sunlight. Bam! That's good. Talk about, yeah, that is good. Talk about Well, good reading, scene. I mean. I'm not... <laughs> well, I mean, I just wanted to show a different New York. Like, the New York of today is so 
different from the New York in 1975. It was literally a city falling apart, like financially, emotionally, you know, in terms of reputation, like Gerald Ford told, literally told the city to drop dead. So um, I wanted to show that. And I think the fun part about fairly recent historical fiction is that we can, as people, readers, we we can make the connections and, re and see like, oh, you know, we know what's going to happen. We know where it's going to go. So it's neat to see it in that different setting. Yeah. But it really, I mean, you, you get this gritty mood, right? People say, oh, it's gritty, noir type feel. And I just felt like you, that is really the epitome of what it is. And this sort of fear of be, walking down the streets in New York, which you don't have now. It's all shiny and fancy, right? Like I mean, said. yeah, it's a diff probably if there is a fear, it's a different kind of fear. But there, I think there was a constant, you know, low thrum of anxiety and fear back then, just that you had yeah. to kind of, you know, there's a line in the book, like, you don't wear your nice jewelry out, you keep, you keep your eyes open, you know, you you know, a lot of those things are, are different now. Yeah. Yeah. So um, another thing that you also bring back is the fact that throughout the book, there are comments made like comics are dead, comics mm -hmm. are dying. Right. And in fact, Triumph was really making their money through selling little tchotchkes, right? Not like right. actually the comic books. Right. You look, you look back on that now and it's like comics are raking in millions, billions of dollars for right these big companies. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about, you know, why everyone thought comics were dying. Well, I think this was before there were, I mean, there were some comic shops, but before comic shops were a widespread thing where you could go into a shop and find any issue. So you were really like, as a reader, you were dependent on the newsstand. So that meant if you were lucky, you'd find the new Spider-Man, you might not find the new Spider-Man the next issue. So there wasn't as much continuity. Um, and so it was a very disposable and kind of transient form of entertainment. And um, I think at that point in the 70s, the newsstand was losing traction. And so comics as an industry were kind of flailing a little bit and they really didn't know what was gonna happen. Like there was success right around the corner. Like in a few years, the direct market, which is a fancy way of saying comic shops were coming and that would help revitalize the industry. And then there would be media and merchandise and stuff like that. And that would change everything, but it was a particular low point. And I wanted to show it in contrast to today where we have like a Peacemaker TV show. We have like, you know, uh, Ant-Man, we have all these things that are like very obscure characters from yesteryear now in mainstream media, and it's a whole different world. Yeah, I think characters that people... Can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry, I had a little... Okay. Um, so characters that even they thought were dying, right, at the time. It's like, oh, yeah, Ant-Man, like, who can't... Right, you have, you have a great comment about that. Like, well, oh, what's, also, what's also interesting is that I think there was not as much editorial oversight. Like, they didn't see these characters as investments or long-term like IP, like, oh, this could be a movie. It was more like, well, let him do his thing and we'll get the book out on time. He meet, they meet deadlines and, you know, creators could do this kind of wacky stuff that, you know, exists now in different ways, but I don't think will ever exist in the same way it did in the 70s. Yeah. So um, you have a great couple of scenes that you wrote where uh, Carmen and some of your other characters talk about going to the store and they see the comics on the racks. Right. And like going in and pulling, like you were saying, it's on mm -hmm. a comic store. Right. You're there like a right, so the store, stand, yeah. Yeah. pharmacy. Yeah. yeah. Picking something up. Right. Um, and I just felt like I could see you in that position. Right. Flipping through the racks and like pulling your comic comic out and stuff. Oh, but yeah. You... I mean, yeah. A lot of a lot of me actual memories went into that. I mean, I was kind of at the cusp, you know, comic shops existed, but they really kicked into high gear in the 90s. So I started reading comics like regularly in the late 80s, early 90s. So that's kind of when I start to go to like far the pharmacy or, you know, the newsstand. And then finding comic shops was so eye-opening to be able to find any issue or get any comic I wanted, quote unquote, you know, within reason. But um, yeah, just seeing all those colors on the shelf was like, 
where do you start? Like I have five bucks in my pocket. I can only get two comics. Like, what are they going to be? Like, it's like endless possibilities. Yeah. Okay. So there's one scene in particular that I really wanted to ask you about. So um, everybody knows that's listening that Carmen um, had all these ideas, basically the links, which is the central comic in here, right? Is her idea, even though, even though she doesn't draw it. And there's one point where she's standing there and she's watching two girls flip through other comics. And they're like, ah, oh, Wonder Woman or like, no good, no good. But the links, the lethal links, like this is who you want. And you see her standing there. And I just like, my heart, I was like, I wanted to cry for Carmen because her yeah. name wasn't on it. What was it like writing that scene? It was tough. I mean, it was hard. I mean, it, you know, the book is succeeding when you're kind of torturing your characters. You have to, to some degree, pull them, put them through I the like ringer. That. But like I had, that. you know, I wanted her to have the context of what this book was doing, like the effect it was having, how important it was. I mean, as for me as a kid, it was super important to read a comic book that featured like a Latinx superhero, like that was not as common when I was a kid. And so when I read that, it really resonated. So I wanted to kind of show that duality to her in a really direct way. Like she's walking and watching these girls like connect to her work. Um, so that was really important, even though it's like a very, it's a very short scene, but it, it kind of propels her forward to like really know, like I need to reclaim this character. Yeah, but it was also, it was short. It was only like a page and a half. Mm -hmm. And yet it, I felt like that was the crux, yeah. right? That yeah. was the moment. Yeah, um, I mean, it's, you, with with amateur detectives, you have to really have a, a strong, like, primal reason to make them investigate a crime. Because normal people like us, crime writers aside, don't want to do that, you know, unless it's something that is integral to them. And so for me, it, for Carmen, it was this idea that this character that she spent years writing and creating and gave away was now gone. And then to see those girls reading the character and connecting with it, you know, it was just that's what tipped her over. Yeah. Well, similarly, um, you have the, um, you know, the artist himself. Am I, I, don't, I hope I'm going to say the name right. Doug Detmer. Yeah. Right? Is that how mm -hmm. you say it? Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, he sort of guesses it's her, right? So she's over there at his apartment and says something and she like, you know, throws out her arm or something, right, to stop him. And so there's this moment. And that was similarly this the crux, like a moment of... I wanted her to just break down and be like, yes, it's me, <laughs> this big moment. But you let it pass sort of quickly. And, and I thought maybe that is more realistic. I don't know. Could, I just want to hear you. Could you talk about how you thought about that moment of her revealing herself? I wanted to let the moment of Detmer figuring it out breathe a little bit. And I think Carmen is, you know, is smart and and thoughtful and is, wasn't going to just like kind of show herself immediately in terms of her identity as the creator of the links. I mean, she knew Detmer, but I don't know if she necessarily trusted him and she admired him. Um, and it's clear from the beginning when they first meet, he's like, hey, you're the one that gives me those great notes. Like he's yes. got her pinned as like the brains of the operation, like not just yes. the links, but of the company. Like yes. he knows Carlisle, the CEO is kind of a clown. Mm -hmm. um, he was never really impressed by Harvey before. Like he's like, he wrote these perfunctory things and now he's doing these home runs. So there's what's, what's new here. Right. And so I wanted, I wanted another character to figure it out. And, and I also, you know, you know, I don't want to spoil too much about it, but Detmer is really like the opposite arc you know carmen is climbing up and detmer's having this kind of tragic arc um so it was interesting to have those intersect for a minute yeah yes i loved it okay um moving along because we only have about 10 more minutes and i have mm -hmm. like a thousand more questions to ask okay. you <laughs> but I'll, I wanna... I'll stick to one word answers <laughs> no no okay i want to talk i want to read the trina robbins uh paragraph because i just got so excited to see this okay so you have one of your characters she said um I made my bones putting zines and writing and drawing comics about real stuff, like getting your period and dating and the real world, you know? 
kind of a poor woman's version of Trina Robbins, I guess. <laughs> She's someone I really admire, but I'd write and draw real things, stuff that happens to real people that I wake up and think about, not male prepubescent fantasies, guys in tight underwear punching each other because they don't understand. I never liked those kinds of books. I still don't. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's Marion. Marion's actually an interesting character because she was only really in the initial outline. She was only meant to show up in that opening scene in that volleyball game where she shows up. She's right. kind of this ominous right. uh, herald of what's to come. Like <laughs> Harvey is bad, and um, and then she just started popping up again. Like we, I wrote, was writing the comic con scene, and then I was like, "Where's this going to go?" I mean, I knew where it was supposed to go in the outline, but then Marion showed up, and she was like, "You're coming with me," and she takes Carmen and starts becoming really entangled in the third act, and she becomes this really important part of the story. Um, and I really wanted to show that there, you know, comics superheroes are mainstream are part of mainstream comics but they are not all comics like comics is a medium and i think people often mislabel it as a genre like crime or sci-fi it's not a genre it's a way to tell those kind of stories and so i wanted marion to kind of be a, a, a inkling that there was a lot more going on in comics and the underground comic scene was something of great import and marion was kind of straddling that line like she worked in mainstream comics at Warren kind of like horror comics, but she had a past life in, uh, in underground comics. Yes. It was so good. I was so glad you could fit that in there. Right? Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. She's a great character. I really like yeah. writing her. And the San Francisco scene was very different from the New York comic yeah. scene. Back yeah. Then. Totally different. So, yeah. So I was so happy to see that in there. Um, okay. So let's move on and talk a little bit about, about the actual illustrations that are in here. And you worked with two people. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. um, I think most of my listeners are probably not used to or comic readers. I'm going to assume. Sure. So can you talk about the process of creating? I don't know if anybody can see. Like here's a small... Oops, there we go. Small yeah, that's one of, of them. What, yeah. what you might see in the book. So who are the two people you worked with and how, do, how does it come together? How do you collaborate? So I worked with an artist, Sandy Gerald, and a letterer, Taylor Esposito. And the way it worked is, you know, I knew early on that this book was going to include comic book sequences. And I, as I wrote the novel and I wrote the outline, I kind of carved out the sections because I wanted it to not just feel like perfunctory, not just be like, oh, he's showing off and throwing comics in there. Um, I wanted the comic book sequences to be basically in conversation with the prose. And Sandy was a great choice because he's not just a great artist, but he also is a historian of comics. Like he loves comic book history. He's a collector. He gets it. And I didn't want it to be something where he was imitating someone's style. So when you look at the links pages, they should feel like they're from the period, like evoke the era, but not be like, oh, that's Sandy doing like Frank Miller or something like that. Um, and so what, what I did is I would send Sandy like a brief description of the pages, like, hey, two or three pages, the links is going to be jumping over some rooftops. She's going to throw a star, catch this guy, pin him to the ground, interrogate him, and then she'll uh, will end on a shocked close up, like stuff like that. And then he would lay out the page. It's pretty detailed. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, a couple sentences, maybe more. And he would lay it out like rough layouts, like stick figures and kind of arrows pointing to what would happen. And I would write the script, meaning the captions and the dialogue. And so while Sandy's finishing the page, like tightening it up and adding all the effects and getting into high detail, Taylor then layers on the lettering to match the art. And and then we proof it and look it over and tweak it. And, you know, that's always the fun post game. But um, yeah, it was great. It was it's a much more organic process than me just giving Sandy a script. Um, this way, it lets him kind of direct the movie, you know, and he's the artist. Like, who better to tell me what it's supposed to look like than the artist? Like, I'm not an artist. Like, I can tell him what I think it should look like. But I wanted to give him that wiggle room. 
And then with the publisher too, because that's another person coming into play here, right? That your publisher has bought a novel, right? Wants yeah. to publish a novel, but you're also having comics in there. So how was the back and forth there with that? Yeah, I always wanted to be transparent from the get-go with that. So when we pitched the novel, um, I included like a proof of concept. We, Sandy did a sample page and Taylor lettered it and, lettered it, and uh, we sent it along and I noted in the outline because we did a partial. So it, it included like the first chunk of the prose, one sample page and then the outline so my editor could see what it was going to be. And so that was all, it was all on the table, which was helpful, I think, to kind of wrap their, so the publisher at Flatiron could wrap their head around, you know, how are we going to do this? They did it in black and white just for ease of printing. And I think that's, so we knew that early on. So you'll see, you see a lot of gray tones and kind of um, effects like that, which is because we knew it was going to be in black and white. Yeah. So did they say, okay, we'll do 10 pages or give you a limit or like, how did that work? They were very supportive. They said whatever works best for the story. And so I had it allotted. I think we're at like 14 or 15 pages. And um, okay. I think that's what felt right. I love it. I, I, mean, I actually wanted more. Yeah, <laughs> that's what so I wanted. Know. I didn't yeah. want I didn't want people to feel like overwhelmed, like, oh, there's like 30 comic book pages and I have to read an entire issue. But um, I wanted just enough to give people a taste of what those comics were like. Yeah. So what was the hardest part about this whole process, writing this whole book? I wouldn't say it was hard. I think it was... Um, the most, I guess, the most intensive part on the ramp up was doing a lot of research in terms of, you know, a lot of journalistic research, um, talking to people that were there at the time that worked in comics or women that worked in comics and also researching, reading a lot of books about, you know, comic book history, New York history, cultural history around the time, just to make sure I got it. I was at least in the ballpark of what was going on. A lot of, you know, cross-referencing calendars and making sure what was happening jives with the timeline. Um, you know, there were many times I had to kind of tinker with the whole novel's timeline because it, it hinges a little bit on that Comic-Con at the Commodore. And if something deviated early on, it was just like dominoes falling. So I guess, I mean, it's probably a common thing for historical mystery writers, but this was my first historical mystery. And um, so it was a lot of research and making sure I was getting all aspects of things write, which I'm a stickler for. So, um, and that was fun. I mean, I liked interviewing people and I liked, I had a lot of great beta readers who worked in comics at the time that could fact check things and also give me a sense of what the production cycle was like. Like I'm, I wasn't working in comics in the seventies, shocker. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> nice. um, yeah. So I, there was just some things that were new to me that don't exist anymore. Like the way things are pasted up or when sales reports come in, like little details that maybe like a layman might not get, but if a comic fan reads it, they'd be like, there's no way they would get sales results like two weeks in, you know, like things like that. Right. So um, Carmen, we've alluded to it a little bit. It's not a spoiler to say like, right. People didn't think women should be in comics or bosses. Like, you know, I don't want you drawing them, this kind of thing. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, do you get pushback on that or people, you know, saying like, it couldn't have been that bad for women in comics? I haven't gotten any pushback. I haven't, I mean, yeah. No, Good, I think everyone's it was been. that bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think based on the conversations I had, it, it, you know, and it seems like it was fairly accurate. So. Yeah, and I mean, I then the other side, I keep thinking like Trina Robbins is probably thinking, "Thank goodness someone is writing this finally." I hope right? so. I mean, I hope she yeah. liked it. She said she enjoyed it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so amazing. Um, so, what kinds of like promotional things are you going to do with other, um, you know, with this? Are you going to try to meet with other comics? Like, could you talk a little bit about how you're going to dip the novel into the comic world for my audience who does not necessarily read comics? 
So I'm doing some events with some comic shops. I did a streaming event with a store called Space Cadets in Texas. And later, early next month, I'm doing one with this store called Mega Brain with the artist Sandy's going to be on it with me. Um, and we're also, Sandy and I are also working on some Lynx comic books, but it's going to be really as meta as possible. Like we're going to treat it like this is just a collection of those comics. Like our names will be on it somewhere, maybe in the Indicia, but it'll say like, by Harvey Stern and Doug Detmer, you know, stuff like that. Like it'll be very much in world. Um, and, like it and, says in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be yeah. one of those things that feels like if you pick it up, it could be, I don't know, we're almost actualizing this fictional world, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Okay. So I'm ready for those comics when yeah. you're ready. If you need <laughs> yeah. another beta reader, I'm yes, here. I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. All right. So I always ask every guest, what kind of advice do you have for new writers or aspiring writers out there? Two bits of advice, finish, finish stuff like finish things. Like I know it's tempting to shift gears and do what's shiny and new in your head, but when you finish something, you can revise it and make it better and, you know, shorten the path between thinking about writing and writing. You know, a lot of writers, that road gets longer and longer. And then you not surprisingly don't write as much as you used to like, Oh, I need, uh, I need to have done X or Y before I can start writing, or I need to be in a certain room or I have to be on my computer at a certain time. And, for me, it's like, just open your laptop and you should be able to start writing. Like, just make it as easy as possible because that's the hardest part to get to the writing. I like that. Shorten that time yeah. period, right? Just get Yeah, just get it. in there. Yeah. And how about in terms of finding an agent or like getting that first start? Do you have any advice on that? Yeah, my advice would be like, there's no... Def definitive path. You know, you don't have to get X to get to Y. Like I published my first novel before I got an agent. I got an agent based on that first novel. Um, I didn't get, I didn't, yeah, I didn't get my first quote unquote big publishing deal until after I wrote five novels for an indie press. And, you know, like everyone's journey is different. And so I would say don't compare and contrast, you know, celebrate other people's victories and, you know, don't be afraid to say no to a bad contract. Don't be afraid to say no to a bad editor, you know, like, be your, your best advocate is you in a lot of yeah. a lot of situations. I love that, Alex. Very wise words. Oh, thanks. And as you know, Secret Identity. I love it. For all thank of you. you listening now, go out and buy a copy today. Alex, thank you so much for joining me. May oh, you thanks sell for having many, me. Many copies. Thank you so much. Thank you.